Diorama Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, search engines and self-control. In addition, we're joined by Andrew Savitz, who will talk about the triple bottom line. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not as lost as before. Did you have a map? The internet has a new map, actually a new search engine, called uh, Wolfram Alpha. Steven Wolfram? Yep, Stevie Boy. I thought he was busy with a new kind of science. Well, I, I think he's already moved on to something even newer and cooler <laughs> and more important, he claims. What's the cool thing about the new uh, search engine? So it's presumably a competitor to Google and supposedly has a more human language interface than what we have right now. So, for example, you could ask something like, you know, when did Lincoln give his Gettysburg address? And it'll give you the date as if it was answering your question. Some of the more recent press examples is like if you type two words, say uh, New York, California, it'll give you a list of statistics, a comparative graph of both states, distance between two, or some way where it tries to interpret what the typer is trying to ask. It's not clear yet whether it's actually going to be successful against Google. And it's quite interesting because Google apparently has some new innovations up its sleeve and announced it the same day that Wolfram made its press release. So it's quite interesting to see what both of these uh, companies are going. How have the people been trying this uh, for quite some time just to have natural language interface? It's probably going to um, be years away, but you know, any small steps is quite exciting for a lot of people since it would simplify their search queries so you don't have to think of elaborate questions but simply ask something that's straightforward and hopefully the search engine will understand your context all right very fascinating stuff all right search it all right and uh, lest we forget uh, it's time for our animal fact of the week yeah that sounds pretty wild <laughs> it is i mean two weeks in a row the animal facts are just uh, rolling off our tongue right <laughs> Like dolphin sashimi. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, the animal fact does have to do with dolphins and uh, other uh, sea mammals. Okay, but not quite a sashimi part. <laughs> well, uh, well, it might if you happen to catch them and are quite hungry. It tastes like chicken, by the way, from what I heard. I don't eat it myself. Have you ever wondered how sea mammals sleep in the ocean? Didn't know they slept, actually. What they do is they actually rest half of their brain at a time. They can keep on being half conscious as they're going about their business, and then uh, half their brain is actually sleeping and doing all the things that it needs to do while it's sleeping. So do they dream of being a butterfly? or? I guess they dream of being like a dolphin butterfly. Wow. Speaking about more uh, interesting facts about brains and such, here's our real story for today. It turns out researchers from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena have discovered how our brains help us have self-control. What keeps us from going completely wild then, right? Especially when you're dieting. Oh, dieting, okay. The researchers were interested in how some dieters were able to stick to their diets while others had 
poor ability at controlling their desires. It turns out the difference actually is between those who are very good at self-control and those who aren't is a particular region of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This is a region that's previously associated with learning and memory, and in volunteers who were scanned using fMRI, they found that those who were very good at self-control had much more activity in this particular region. So is this a result of people exerting their thoughts on self-control, or is it physical aspect that influence our ability to have self-control. That's always the question is uh, whether or not you can train this particular region of the brain, for example, to uh, become more active and thus enable you to have more self-control. Or what is it about these particular people that allows that part of the brain to be more active? It's not really clear. Mm -hmm. It's all they're showing is that, in fact, this particular region in those who have self-control, much more highly active. Okay. So basically, if you put a few electrodes and activate it more, then you have more self-control then. Yeah, I guess that would be one way to do it. So maybe just like bang your uh, your forehead a few times when you're about to have that cheesecake, and you might, of course, you you might have a concussion. But uh, it's a, it's a small price to pay for being thin, right? Yeah, thin is thin. All right. Anyway, so this is uh, work done by Todd Hare, a uh, Caltech neuroscientist, and published in a recent edition of Science. It's from my one of my favorite schools, actually. I think I've heard of it. I think they do like refrigeration repair or something. Oh yeah. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. In a few moments, Mr. Andrew Savis joins us to talk about his book, The Triple Bottom Line. So stay right there. the program and with us today is our very special guest Mr. Andrew Savitz. He is the author of The Triple Bottom Line. He is an advisor to the Department of Environment and Natural Resources at Harvard University and today he's with us to tell us a little bit about his work. Uh, Mr. Savitz, thank you so much for joining us here today. Before we begin, could I also introduce my the vice president of my consulting company, Noah Savitz, who's traveling in Japan with me this week. Hi, I'm Noah Savitz. Welcome here, and um, yeah, please tell us a little bit about yourself. I started my career doing environmental consulting, uh, and then I began to get much more interested in not only environmental issues, but social and economic issues uh, in about the late 1990s. Uh, this actually coincided with the birth of Noah, and I now have three children, and uh, I become quite interested in how corporations can actually make money and make the world safe 
for the next generation of people uh, who are going to inherit both the good things and the bad things that we've done uh, to the planet and to society. In your presentation, you mentioned that there's over 60 different definitions of sustainability right now. Uh, what's your definition? I define sustainability for corporations, anyhow, as finding the intersection between their business interests and the needs of environment or society. And I have noticed that companies that do this tend to do better in the long run. If they can find products and services that will not only help their financial bottom line, but also help the eco the environmental and social bottom lines, uh, they'll simply do better, which is why my book is called The Triple Bottom Line. And speaking of your book, um, I understand you mentioned a few anecdotes, uh, companies like Pepsi. Uh, maybe you could tell us one or two of your favorite stories here. Well, I'll tell my favorite failure story, <laughs> which is we have a company, and uh, it's actually well-known around the world, in America called the Hershey Chocolate Company. And Hershey was founded in the late uh, 1890s by what would, we would call a utopian capitalist, a man named Milton Hershey, who founded the company in part for the good of the community. Well, a hundred years later, the Hershey Company decided it wanted to sell itself to another larger candy company and made plans to sell the company and all of the assets, including the factories in Hershey and elsewhere around the country. And this news was announced on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. The only problem was that Hershey forgot to talk to the employees and to the community about it in advance, who, and it's a long story, but they rose up together and stopped the sale. And this becomes a negative example for how if you ignore the needs of the com local community you're in and the, the employees, well, you may wind up shooting yourself in the foot or holding the wrong end of the stick. In this case, Hershey lost out on a $12.5 billion deal because they did not consider how the employees and the community would react to the idea of a sale, nor did they integrate them into the planning around the sale. What The thing that got them so angry was there were no protections in the deal for the local plants to stay open. Uh, Hershey was trying to maximize every last penny it could, so it was willing to sell itself unconditionally without any restrictions, which got it the highest financial price, but may have come at a social price to the town. So the moral of the story is if you're only focused on short-term financial interests without regard to other broader interests, uh, you may wind up, uh, you know, losing out. And so, you know, U.S., we had the new Obama administration, and they are a very big proponent of doing something about climate change. What unique role do you see the U.S. government and U.S. leadership? Well, I think the first thing is that the United States is going to be back in the international community. And we've had eight years of basically going it alone. And this has been not only, I think, an embarrassment to many many, many Americans, but has also, I think, gotten us bad results in the world. Now we have a president and a secretary of state and Hillary Clinton and a whole administration that understands that we face global issues and we need to be involved in a global community to solve them. So I'm not sure we'll do anything unique about climate change, but I do think you're going to see the United States play a very active leadership role in the upcoming Copenhagen discussions and in getting you know, we'll, we will be assuming 
to some degree, the role that we should be playing because we're responsible for a very large percentage of the problem. And I think we will now see the country taking up and standing up and taking some responsibility and working with other countries to solve it. I think we will see climate change legislation domestically as well sooner than other people may think, but I, I think we'll see it in the next year. We will go in the United States to some sort of cap-and-trade system where, you know, companies will be able to uh, sell and buy carbon credits, uh, which is really, I think, considered to be, you know, one of the main ways of addressing climate change. We're also—the country is also slowly but surely moving toward wind power and renewables. Last year, one-third of the newly installed electric generation in the United States was wind power. Most people fall off their chair when they hear this, but— it's very hard right now to, to get a new coal-fired plant sited in America because the local community doesn't want the coal-fired plant. They're not sure they want the wind power either, but it's easier to take than the coal-fired plant. In your presentation, you put the climate change or other environmental issues and business, and which makes the, creates a sweet spot. Is this happening everywhere in the world? And is this because the um, demand side or consumers get smart and aware of the issues like health issues and environment issues? I do think it's happening everywhere in the world, and it's happening for many reasons. In some cases, it's happening because consumers are demanding it. Like, for example, when the price of gas goes up, consumers demand more efficient automobiles. Uh, many consumers in America now, and I think around the world, are demanding organic food food grown without pesticides or grown in environmentally respectful ways. They want local produce as well, local food, which is not only good for the environment, but good for local economies. These are making changes because consumers are demanding it. Other changes are coming because companies see that they can save money, for example. They use less water. They use less energy. It saves them money. Whether their customers want them to do it or not, it makes sense from a business perspective. In some cases, it's happening because the government is looking for it and pushing them. So I think it is happening pretty much all over the world because there's very few natural resources that are free these days. So every company is facing sort of financial issues, uh, but it is happening for different reasons. It's also happening for di in, in different places in the world for different reasons, I think. You know, sustainability in Japan is not exactly the same thing, does not have necessarily the same priorities as sustainability in the United States. But in general, uh, it's about solving the world's problems uh, and getting business engaged in helping to solve the world's problems. At least that's my perspective. Thank you. I'd like to follow up on that question with, for example, in developing countries where 90 to 95 percent of industry is made up of small to medium-sized enterprises, so they really, really don't have a lot of the power, like in your example of Walmart with their suppliers. So I was wondering if you could reflect on that type of situation um, in relation to your triple bottom line approach. Well, it's a great follow-up question because obviously, you know, sustainability for, uh, for a wealthy society may look a lot different than for a developing country. I mean, microfinance would be the one that comes to mind, obviously. It's sort of the application of sustainable business principles uh, to very, very small country to, to developing countries where people are very poor. Many corporations are now understanding for the first time that they have to understand the cultural 
and economic uh, situation they're in. They can't simply use, they can't just develop the same products and market them in the same way to tribal villagers in Kenya that they are marketing them into, uh, you know, movie stars in Los Angeles. But it is true that many people in Kenya want to have white shirts, you know, clean clothes as well. So instead of selling a box of Tide or detergent for $2.95, companies are selling them in one-cent single-serve packages. Procter & Gamble is actually sending market research people to live with tribal people living in tribes in Ghana and, and around Africa to understand how they live, what their needs are, and how to actually bring them in to the economy of the world. You know, the problem is we've got 2 billion people living on $2 or less in the world. That's an outrage. How do you actually get help develop local economies in a way that it's going to bring people to a much higher standard of living? And many corporations are engaged in that, along with great partnerships with places like Oxfam, you know, for NGOs that are also working on that. You know, but it will, I think, the, the ultimate form of sustainability is a three-way partnership between government, business, and the so-called civil society, NGOs. And when you have, you know, companies like PepsiCo working together with Oxfam, working together with the governments in Africa, you know, you can get results. Uh, so thank you very much. Could you explain a little bit about the local business initiative to support circular economies at local level, which means local production and local consumption, including foods or any others, if you have any? I can't claim to be an expert on this, but I think, you know, in the area of food, this is where you're seeing a real backlash to globalization. I've actually written an article about localization. Many people want local products for many reasons. For one thing, they believe that these are healthier products. That may not be true, and in many cases it isn't, but they believe it is. It's also a more transparent economy to them. When you can see the farm where the food comes from, and if you know the farmer, then there's a little bit more security, in a sense, uh, in buying food that way. Um, Also, people want to help their local economies. Uh, So when you're working, when you are a larger company, if you're buying locally, this has become a measure of sustainability, supporting the local economy. No, thank you very much. I, I do research on climate change, and, and one of the strong criticisms of the current processes to develop a new um, protocol in Copenhagen is that there has not been enough engagement with the, uh, the business community from um, the United Nations framework on uh, climate change. I'm wondering what types of things you think can be done at the international level to better engage with the business community so that we can move forward on this issue. Well, one thing is to invite them in. Another thing is to... I think the business community often feels that the carbon, that the, that the Kyoto process has sort of left them out. Well, so, for example, in America, there's lots of people who are angry at the coal-fired electric utilities because they are responsible for the vast majority of the problem. The fact is that in America, 50% of our energy comes from coal. And if they got what they, you know, that expression, be careful what you wish for, if you suddenly wished all the coal-fired power plants out of existence, half the country would go dark. 
So the what I think businesses are looking for are reasonable regulations that yes push technology forward, but don't push, don't create unrealistic expectations. I think that's the problem. Um, climate change has become a political football, and that's a bad thing. I think, but when reasonable regulation and reasonable uh, decisions come out of these international communities, I think the business community feels like they're more willing to participate. You know, of course, at the end of the day, uh, government has to do what government has to do, which is to make business uh, sometimes move faster than they want to. But, uh, you know, I'm not really an expert at at the climate change negotiations, but I do know, having worked with several large companies, that, uh, you know, they want to participate, they want to help. In many ways, many American corporations were ahead of the Bush administration on this. I mean, many companies were saying, we need to be involved in Kyoto. We need global regulation on this. Uh, And the Bush administration uh, was simply saying no. Now I think, uh, you know, you'll see a lot more cooperation, not only from the American government, from American businesses on climate change generally. Does anyone have any questions for Noah? Which one do you want to go? Either old city or the make of video game? Video game. Because there's more things to do there, I think, at the video game place. There's more video games and um, stuff you can do. You can um, drain. You can get the um, game information on your cell phone, download it. Then you can um, plug it into your computer, then get the game on, like, eBay or something or Walmart, get from Walmart. I think Noah's much more interested in the modern world than in the ancient world. We got that right. <laughs> well, I guess we are running a little bit out of time. Are there any last words you'd like to add about um, yourself or your book or uh, Noah? I've read the first seven pages of my dad's book in my mom's study. It was. It's on a shelf, and then I just saw it, and I started reading it. And I didn't get a lot of it, but it was, it looked it sounded kind of interesting. You think people should buy the book? E- maybe, yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Do you want to continue to go to the video arcade? Oh yeah, then yeah. They better buy the book. Buy the book. <laughs> I just want to thank everybody here, and I I just for having us. Uh, it's been a great uh, afternoon, and uh, we've had a nice time, and uh, we got to see Mount Fuji, and we hope to be back. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Savage, and thank you so much for your insights today. And we were just talking to Mr. Andrew Savitz and his son Noah on his book, The Triple Bottom Line. You can check it out at Barnes & Nobles and Amazon.com. In a few moments, the world-famous question a week, so stay right there.
All right, and we have a very special guest today for our question of the week. He comes all the way from Kazakhstan, Mr. Borat. That's right. High five. <laughs> High five. High five. <laughs> from Kazakhstan Science Institute. Oh, okay. So you're selling. My body. She like T-cells. Oh, T-cells? Is that like T-bills? Attack the foreign invaders. You know, the, the body. <laughs> High five. <laughs> oh, hey, High five, man. High five. It's good. Thanks a lot, Borat. High five. High five. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.